Hey everyone, before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that I created a new fun little resource for you. If you've been here before, you know that I love creating stuff in Canva and I also love reading and listening to books. And what I created is my ultimate guide to my top four books related to creativity and healing that I wish I would have read in grad school. So I called it the Innovative Therapist Book Guide. It's totally free. It's going to guide you through my top four books. I bet maybe one you'll be expecting, but I bet some of the other ones you'll be pretty surprised about. So uh, yeah, I'd love to hear what your guesses were and what you ended up thinking of my top four books that I'd recommend you read. If you want to think outside the box, think innovatively about human relationships and how we can heal ourselves and heal the world. So grab it for free at drhondorp.com forward slash books. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash books. And I can't wait to hear what you think. All right, let's dive into the episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I am really excited to bring to you this conversation with Dr. Courtney Warren. Dr. Warren is a board-certified clinical psychologist and adjunct clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at um, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas School of Medicine. She's won many awards for her research, and she's an expert on addictions, self-deception, romantic relationships, eating pathology, and the practice of psychotherapy from a cross-cultural lens. Her newest work is a self-help book that explores breakups through an addictive framework, and it's called Letting Go of Your Ex, CBT Skills to Heal the Pain of a Breakup and Overcome Love Addiction. So that book just came out in 2023. And um, in this interview, we covered so many things because Dr. Warren has so many areas of expertise that I was so excited about. Um, She really does have so much personal and professional wisdom to share with us. And um, to be honest, I kind of had to laugh at myself because I was like so excited and I had all these questions running through my mind at once and I had a hard time like keeping my train of thought as I was in this interview. Um, But I think we covered it all and I think it actually does come together quite nicely. It is a longer interview, but as you know, I've If you've been listening, I haven't been breaking up episodes as much, but we do do timestamps now. So if you want to scan down in the show notes, you'll be able to know what topics are covered at what time periods. But Dr. Warren shares a ton of wisdom in various ways that our cultural context impacts the lies we tell ourselves. Um, This is really at the core of doing the deeper work that we need to do to live a life that feels fulfilling and right for us. And, you know, I think it's a good reminder as much as any listeners who are tuning in, um, who've been tuning in for a while know that I've, you know, gotten into different frameworks or theoretical orientations, but I really think that this, what we're talking about here with self-deception and kind of the lies we tell ourselves can be applied to all these different frameworks. And so Dr. Warren takes a cognitive behavioral approach and there's so much good in this conversation. So it's really a reminder that it's not so much about the framework, although I think it's important to find a framework that fits you as a provider or a clinician, but also as a client. But it's really about, you know, listening to these messages and just noticing what resonates and speaks to you. So we cover the topic of love addiction, which is really fascinating and pretty new to me. Um, And I think 
it's so important for people to have this language, but also there's a lot of parallels and implications for the controversial topic of food addiction. Um, so we get lots of tangible advice. We cover really tons of different things from the lies we tell ourselves to, you know, body trust and what we can learn from other cultures to love addiction and just lots of tangible ways to help ourselves with these. And uh, Dr. Ward even gives me some tips to help me like strength training, which is essentially part of most interviews, it seems like. So I'm really excited to share this interview with you. Um, thank you for being here and let's dive in. All right. So welcome back to the Motivation Made Easy podcast. I have a very special guest today who uh, I've kind of a like special history with because I've been following her work for so many years and uh, we have so many things we could dive into today and I'm just so excited to get started. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Courtney Warren. Thank you so much for having me. I am over the moon to talk to you today. Yay. Yeah. So my super quick background, just so you know about my, like many years ago, I just mentioned before we hit record that I listened to your book. Prior to that, I actually looked through my emails because again, it's my filing cabinet. And I got lots of emails from a special interest group for, I think, I think the obesity and eating disorders interest group through ABCT. So I had emails from you there, like the academic eating disorder world, world. But then I was just fascinated. I was like, here's this psychologist who's, so I know some of your story that you left the t- traditional tenure track um, psychology professor track. And I was like, oh, this is fascinating to me. So anyways, I listened to your book, The Lies We Tell Ourselves, and I loved it. And um, and then I saw that you did another interview and I was like, connected with you. And here we are. So that's small glimpse into the background of how I knew you prior to today. But I love it. <laughs> Many years in the making, this I conversation. It's wonderful. <laughs> so Let's have you start by telling, I know I told a tiny bit of what I know of your story, but I would love for you to just tell us some of your story, wherever you want to start, whatever you want to share with us. I am the only child of two professors. I grew up in an environment where formal learning was really, really prized and valued, but also in an environment where lived experiences, travel, understanding culture, understanding the nuances of human nature was also really valued. And so I grew up in a very diverse travel-based family. And I think one of the things that really influenced my journey was that my parents were divorced when I was really young and I traveled all over the world watching my mother speak about isms of domination, really racism, classism, homophobism, and how it influences the lived experiences of humans. And as I went from country to country, one of the things that became most obvious to me was how strongly culture influences our relationship with our bodies and with food. And so I started studying what is it about food and our physical appearance that is culturally influenced? Why is it that so many of my friends and family and people I know in the United States struggle 
struggle every day with what they put in their mouth or looking in the mirror or the number on the scale. And that wasn't true everywhere I went. And so I went into undergraduate as a psychology major, started studying cultural aspects of body image, went to graduate school, and then went into my first tenure track academic position at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, to open a body image and multiculturalism lab. And I find that that topic is still so salient and so important and so critical to our lived experiences. But I also really developed a niche in self-deception, in in self-honesty, because across clients and across experiences in life, one of the things that was most abundantly clear was that we all internalize cultural beliefs, but we're often unaware of it. And the degree to which we can acknowledge reality to ourselves is where your power lies to change your life. And that led me to resigning from a tenured position to really embracing a career that is much more focused on bringing core psychological material to the public in ways that I hope can be inspiring and useful and applicable to their own life experiences in the interest of growing and evolving and really living the best lives we can based on who we really are. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's so, there's so many questions I have in response to that, but it's, that's so fascinating. So you grew up traveling all over. It sounds like. I did. I did. My father is Scandinavian. Um, so we were in Europe a lot and then I ended up in central and South America. I went to high school for a bit in Australia. I went to college for a bit in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Mm. Uh, so yes, kind of the gamut of, of just exposure. And I think exposure is so important Mm -hmm. because so much of our own personal growth happens when we're uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It happens Mm -hmm. in those times where you find yourself in a circumstance that's foreign or that's awkward because you're confronted with yourself in a new way. And so I think travel is just one mechanism through which that can happen for us that can be profoundly important in our journey of self-understanding and personal development. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. And, and so interesting too, that you sort of developed that interest as I did too, of body image and, and eating. And I do have a question I want to come back to about kind of take homes about where we're doing it wrong, (laughs) which I think this country in many countries does it wrong, right. In many ways. So maybe we struggle. Yes. A lot. And it just seems to be getting worse for young kids, I think. And it's so, so frustrating, but this idea of like delving deeper into the self-deception piece, it's interesting because it seems like that's more root cause work, right? So I think often on the surface, we might see disordered eating and body image and various symptoms. And then the self-deception piece, the more I was researching your work in preparation for this, seems like it's really those potential root causes, um, you know, whether we think of it as CBT, core beliefs, internalized core beliefs, right? or just parts of ourselves that have internalized these, these lies that essentially it sounds like we're all liars and we lie all the time. Is that right? Cause I did watch your yes. talk. <laughs> 
where we are, you know, humans are excellent liars. We really are. And we do it overtly, intentionally to people a lot, but that's actually much less concerning to me than the lies that we tell ourselves. Because when we lie to ourselves, we're actually unaware that that deception not only hurts us, but it frames the way that we view ourselves and the world around us. And we perpetuate our own self-deceptive lives by spreading them then to others, right? Mm -hmm. Unknowingly, unintentionally often. And so we live out our core beliefs, even if they're completely false. And when it comes to body image and eating, you know, we could spend hours talking about how we lie to ourselves from Mm -hmm. the internalized beliefs about how you need to look, about what the ideal is, about how much your value as a human being is tied to your physical body. You can also look at self-deception from the perspective of what you tell yourself when you look in the mirror, how you interpret eating a donut versus eating a carrot, right? Mm -hmm. The deceptive Mm -hmm. nature of it happens in the moment, but underneath those automatic thoughts that we all have in the moment that are often deceptive, you have these much bigger underlying beliefs as you were pointing out, that are much deeper, that are much more pervasive, that probably stem from a worldview or value system that is actually inherently flawed in some really fundamentally harmful ways. And so if you can challenge yourself, all of us, if we can challenge ourselves to take our momentary experiences and use them to dig deeper to say, where is this coming from? Where did I believe this was true? What's this deeper message that I appear to think is accurate, but if I unpack it and unravel it, it is absolutely flawed. That's really where you can start shifting some of that underlying pathology that exists in all of us that leads us to sugarcoat things on a daily basis in our lived experiences. Mm, Yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering as you're talking to like we made this like a really tangible example, like you said, if someone's looking at themselves in the mirror and they're having that like really critical, gosh, you look so fat today or whatever, you know, the the critical self-talk is that's that's the initial lie, like the self-critical. And I probably all my listeners know in the past like year plus almost two years now, I've gotten really into internal family systems and parts work of like you have a part that's criticizing harshly and lying, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then that can be seen as protective of another part that feels deeply unworthy and makes it about body size. Cause certainly we've been told like, if you're this body size, that's bad. And yeah, there's lies that there's lies at multiple levels. Cause at first I was trying to conceptualize, right. And the lying all protective parts, but it's like, no, the lying also occurs in those hurt parts of ourselves that we have to hide from the world where it's like, I'm not enough. And I, yeah, I'm supposed to be better. And I was never enough at this size. And so many struggles that 
honestly, the large majority of humans in the United States have, certainly women, but I think the data on men and and all sorts of transgender populations is showing that really most humans are struggling at some level when they look in the mirror. It's rare that people look at themselves and say, oh, I look amazing and I am amazing. And even if I don't think I look amazing today, I'm still just as valuable. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a that that takes a long time for most humans to develop that. Yeah. But there is this inherent self-critical lens that so many of us have internalized and taken on. And as you're pointing out, from whatever theoretical orientation we're we're visualizing this coming from, your early childhood experiences in your cultural context, with your family system, with the media, with your friends and peer group, anywhere there was insecurity there anywhere you were criticized overtly or you felt less than or you felt unlovable or unwanted or broken you are going to be more vulnerable to lying to yourself mm-hmm. and so you know one of the things that i focus on a lot in any work that i do is to helping all of us get to the point where you can see that vulnerability and you can see where the pain is Because oftentimes we're trying to cover that up through our behaviors and through our dysfunctional thinking. But once we actually see it, this very radical acceptance, this very radical honesty, where it's like, yeah, from the time I was young, I felt unattractive. I compared myself to the models on TV. I thought that if I looked the right way, I would find them the right mate. And then my life would actually be easy. I'd have the 2.2 kids. I wouldn't struggle financially. I wouldn't struggle emotionally. And it's all a lie, (laughs) every single bit of it. Yeah, yeah. And like it was, yeah, it was shoved down people's throats and marketed to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then it's this freedom which is the best thing about honesty. It to me it's it's the most compelling profound empowering thing you can do. Mm-hmm. Because when you can stare it down and say, "Wow, I really believed that and it's actually a load of crap. It is mm-hmm. not true." Now you get to say, "Well, now what? What do mm-hmm. I want to do with this information? What do I actually believe makes a meaningful life?" What do I actually believe I need in this Mm -hmm. lifetime so that I'm not looking back with deep regret so that Mm -hmm. I can say, this is who I choose to be. Yeah. That's where your power is. Right. Right. And honesty and freedom and all of that is great. And I'm so on board with that. But like in your Ted talk, you say the same thing. And it's like, ah, And when I look at like the reality of like, oh, I don't want to stay at this job or, oh, I don't want to stay in this relationship. It's like so many of us are like afraid at some level to look at it. But often when we do look at it, there is that tremendous power and freedom, too, that comes with that. It's terrifying, to be (laughs) brutally honest. It's terrifying because Mm -hmm. that self-deceptive part of us, even from a old Freudian perspective from the core psychoanalytic tradition is protective. It's defense mechanisms, it's denial, it's rationalization, it's emotional reasoning. It's any version of sugarcoating something that I'm not ready to admit. Mm -hmm. And so it is actually terrifying because if you start unraveling things, your life might change really profoundly. And as humans, 
we're generally very comfortable in our bubbles and would prefer not <laughs> to rock the boat that much. Yes. Right. Like what if things change and what if they don't like you've, I, I think I watched your Ted talk yesterday to refresh my memory of like, yeah, but what if they don't change? Right. Like what if they don't change. Yeah. What if they don't change? You know, the more we can embrace change as a part of life, the better. And I will say that I think there is a very strong inverse relationship between self-esteem and Mm self-deception. So what I mean by that is the more comfortable you become in your own skin, the more grounded, the more esteem you have for yourself as a human being, the easier it is for you to be honest because anytime you get those hits of, ouch, that hurts. I don't want that to be true. I don't want to admit it. It doesn't cut you as deeply. So for example, let's say, you know, one of my friends comes to me and says, you really hurt my feelings. Sometimes you're really cutthroat and rude and aggressive. Mm -hmm. If I'm feeling really insecure and my self-esteem is low, my first response is very likely to be, no, I'm not. What's wrong with you? You're the one who's aggressive. You're, I I don't even want to hear this, right? I will become self-deceptively defensive. Mm -hmm. But if I'm feeling grounded in my own skin, my friend can come to me and say that, and I might be able to look at myself and say, wow, I am so sorry. Help me understand. I think I am like that. I think I was really aggressive. I really don't want to be that way. Thank you for telling me that. Thank you for sharing. I now have the power to see myself more accurately in this moment. And now here's my freedom to change. Mm -hmm. What am I going to do differently starting right now? Because I see myself more fully. Now I have the power to shift so that I'm not that way in the future. And so when I really think about confronting self-deception, one of the first strategies, tools that I would recommend for people is really actually to start building your Mm self-esteem because it will inherently put you in a position where you can tolerate reality more strongly. Yes. And what would you say? I mean, that's such a good point. And the example that I think of is any human relationship, right? Where they're giving you feedback. But for me recently in my life, it's been parenting where I feel like my kids are like shining a mirror at me and I'm like, <laughs> look at that, but I have to. But I mean, in terms of like the best ways to build up that self-esteem or resilience to that feedback, mm-hmm. what would you say are the best ways that you're mm-hmm. like, if, if someone were like, okay, well, how do I do that? Mm-hmm. I am a huge fan of mantras. Mm. So think about the things that you actually like about yourself and remind yourself, I'm a good person. I'm working hard. I like that I'm kind. I like that I'm really, really trying to be open because the more you can remind yourself of what you're actually really good at and what you really like about yourself, it will start inherently building your self-esteem. I also focus a lot on the effort, which as a parent, you and I both know the research suggests is highly important. Don't focus on the outcome as much as the effort. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of times when we're really struggling, it's hard for us to give ourselves credit for the effort, but focus on that. 
the fact that I'm deliberately trying to work on this, the fact that I'm committed to my own growth, that mm -hmm. I'm journaling is something I recommend people do every day. The fact that I'm actually taking steps that are different for me, that are harder for me, even if it's a total disaster at the end of the day, is a massive positive in my life. Yeah, so sure. even if you're feeling low, remind yourself of, of that. Yeah. I also think yeah. as a parent and as a human being, one of the things that's so important about self-esteem is to be sure that you have as many facets of yourself in the self-esteem bucket as possible. So what I mean by that is oftentimes when we're really struggling, let's take an eating disorder body image example, our entire self-worth becomes hyper-focused on one attribute, i.e. our physical appearance, right? Yeah. Such that when that attribute is seen as positive or negative, it will crash your self-esteem or build you up for the day. And that puts you at a great deal of risk. It's volatile. It makes you vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So if we can diversify the ways that we love ourselves yeah. such that you can say, you know, I like that I exercise today because I'm focused on my, my health. I like that I'm trying to build my relationships with my friends. I like that I'm trying to be a better parent by looking in the mirror more honestly, I like that I'm a hard worker. Then when any one of those buckets is low, the rest of them can still support you. And yeah. so I strongly recommend when people are thinking about self-esteem to remember, think about as many aspects of yourself and your life as possible, because any one of them might feel like it's falling apart today at this moment, but when you can have multiple aspects of yourself, the stronger you're going to be in the long run. And my daughter said to me the other day, I was kind of complaining and feeling a bit sorry for myself. I was cleaning and people were making a mess in my house, which is not my favorite thing. <laughs> and I said something like, I'm feeling very unappreciated right now. And mm -hmm. she came up to me and she said, you know, mom, I want you to know that I think I make a lot of efforts to appreciate you. And here are some examples. And I had to pause, as I tell many people to do, yeah. and look at her and say, thank you so much for giving me those examples. You are absolutely right. You have done so many things to make me feel appreciated. I apologize that I am taking this out on you. Clearly, this is something that I also need to work on internally. Aww, I love that. And I think, you know, when you think about that too, our feelings aren't always accurate. Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. remembering that we're all human. We mm -hmm. all have moments when you have mm -hmm. them and you're not your ideal self in some way. Own it. Try mm -hmm. to hear the feedback apologize when warranted and move forward because it yeah. actually will make you stronger over time. Yes, totally. No, I love that. And I think just even, at least for me personally, like the, the idea of like not being so hard on myself. I remember like learning, you know, about self-compassion research in grad school and just being like, yeah, it's, but it's not that easy for me. Like, and I still, to this day have, it's a lot less than it used to be, but like, oh, I'm just, doing it all wrong, mostly with parenting, honestly. Um, but uh, 
but then being able to kind of step back and say, first of all, I have parenting support networks and groups of people that I just like talk to, but yeah, being like, there's so much effort that's being put into, I'm in a parent coaching program where I'm like always working on myself and, and all these things and like being able to praise that effort and to not, it's not good to put your, all of your eggs in any one basket, if you will. <laughs> and so, like you said, diversifying it's yeah, cause it is. And it makes me think of kind of the act work of, you know, where do our behaviors not line up with our values? I always say like, there's always going to be a discrepancy, but just like, Ooh, okay. But thank you for, especially kids or, or anyone in your life. Like, thank you for telling me it's yes. not easy to oh. hear, but what a gift. That no question, you know, and the work of, of Stephen Hayes and the ACT community and even, you know, Linehan and DBT, where we are mm-hmm. confronted with so many dialectics in life, right? Mm-hmm. We, uh, these, these aspects of ourselves where there's a desire to accept yourself exactly as you are, which I strongly encourage to people to do mm-hmm. while at the same time striving to change. Yeah. And those yeah. seem like they're so much in conflict, right? If you, if you really accept and love yourself as you are, then this idea that you're still going to need to keep moving forward and shift some things seems like it's counterintuitive, but they actually both exist. And the more that we can embrace them both and accept ourselves while still growing, Mm -hmm. I I think that's probably as good as it's going to get. Yeah. It's, it's key (laughs) for sure. Yes. And I want to ask, you know, you've done all this traveling, you've looked at cultural components to body image and like essentially where we're, you know, there's lots of things we're doing here in the U.S. or Western culture wrong. What have you noticed in terms of like cultures who are doing things, maybe not right, but at least better in terms of being able to have that trust with their bodies and maybe having less mm. disordered eating? I'm just curious, like what you've observed mm-hmm. or if there's any things that really stuck with you in that realm. Yes. I think there are so many things actually. Um, And they're probably more characteristics of different cultures than any one culture who's doing it right or wrong. Yeah. But, you know, one thing that I see that's very different across cultures is the way that they view aging. Mm -hmm. And so some cultural contexts really have a reverence towards aging towards older adults, towards the process of growth over time, such that the idea that you're physically aging and emotionally aging actually isn't seen as negative or Mm. in fact is seen as very positive. And especially Mm. when it comes to women and our gender role and our sort of hyper-focus in the United States and in most Western cultures on youth equals beauty yeah that when you can have a much more long-term view of what the ideal aesthetic is by age and really embrace and appreciate the cycle of life which inherently means all of us are going to age and not see that as inherently negative mm-hmm. i think is a huge thing that this country needs and i will say there are efforts 
by some actresses right now who are going gray, right? And very mm-hmm. intentionally um, trying to show images of themselves without makeup, without so much sort of editing of their physical appearance to yeah. highlight beauty over time. I think that that's wonderful as a yeah. model for how we can appreciate the physical beauty of each phase of our lives. So that's Absolutely. one example that comes Yeah. I like that one because it's a reminder of the self-deception of almost we're, we're denying our aging because culturally we don't really revere older age and wisdom, but also we're like denying the fact that we're all going to die too. And we've talked about this once on a podcast a while ago of emotional eating and dieting and disordered eating, tying it to fear of death, which seems like a big leap in some ways, but it really is one of the many things that we do to just deny our finitude and <laughs> like that we're all yeah. have it. And it's, it's so interesting. And then exacerbated by that belief that we're, we are less valued, right? Because we're less youthful. And even I think our culture just doesn't, doesn't do a great job honoring like the wisdom of previous generations, partly probably because the way we live, there's just this singular nuclear family. We just have a hard time getting that generational yeah. wisdom, I think. And our parents' generation had a hard time getting it from their parents' generation. Mm-hmm. So anyway, these are just things that I've been thinking about before. And I think yeah. it's so interesting to look at, yeah, cultures that are doing it different, or at least that characteristic of like really mm-hmm. celebrating aging, mm-hmm. celebrating gray hair, celebrating wrinkles. And I believe like there's a lot of completely the opposite of that. So yes, you know, we're also, I'm speaking more about mainstream US culture here. We're so focused on marketing to the public anti-aging products. They're billion-dollar industries in Mm -hmm. the beauty and makeup world and plastic Mm -hmm. surgery, which is all aimed at youth and anti-getting older, right? Yeah. Um, We also market prescription drugs directly to the public, which is not true in actually almost any other cultural context. Mm, Um, Yeah. We are really focused on quick fixes. We're also, because we're so individualistic, very quick to blame the individual for not meeting the ideal. And that isn't as true in many collectivistic cultures or cultures uh, where they don't have this, you know, pull yourself up from your bootstraps mentality. We see this a lot in anti- obesity sentiment or in anti-fat attitudes, we would call it in research, mm-hmm. where there's almost this culturally justified belief system that really blames people at a core trait level for not being thin enough. Yeah. That it's actually almost the message that you are stupid or lazy or sloppy or smelly um, or stupid. I mean, these very, very aggressive labels that many people, even people who are overweight and obese themselves, very readily apply Mm -hmm. to anyone that they think is overweight. Mm -hmm. And that I think is very fueled by this individualistic 
attitude that we have that if you somehow don't meet the ideal, it's actually your fault and you should be penalized for it without understanding the complexities of eating and body, without understanding socioeconomic differences in food availability and food costs, without understanding sort of time management and and how much access people have just generally to self-care from a physical health perspective. Mm -hmm. And so I think that combined with this hyper-focus on thinness and youth actually is part of what makes the average American so dissatisfied with their appearance. Because not only are they not going to ever meet the ideal, but they're going to be blamed for not getting there. But they're going to be inundated with products to try to help them, first of all, convince them that something's wrong with them, and then get them to keep working on this diet or this product so that they can keep striving for the ideal they're never going to meet. That's pretty much a recipe for misery right there. Yeah, it really is. And yeah, I mean, I think when we think about like the self-deception piece too, it's this, they're being lied to, which is like, here's the formula for weight loss. And then, Mm -hmm. but then the self-deception is like believing that basically as like, okay, well, it must be me. (laughs) It must be the, despite the statistics, I must be the one failing. I just have to work harder and it's just not working. And so Mm. having that courage to look at, yeah, having, and like you said, building up that self-esteem or self-worth underneath to be like, huh, where, and I think it's interesting because that, that's most of the clients that I work with and being able to like, I think it's often very hard to look at. I mean, it feels good to have it not like the relief of like, it's not me, it's not my fault. And yet it can also be really hard to look at all the hurt that's been portrayed mm-hmm. or put on them. Right. Of, mm-hmm. Wait, what the heck? <laughs> I've been treated like crap and I didn't even realize it because I was just assuming it was me. It's, it's such a journey, I think, too, as a mental health professional, because on the one hand, there are so many reasons that people struggle, that we see. Life is hard. The average human struggles, myself included, with a whole host of things over the course of our lives, right? It is really hard. And so there are many situations that we find ourselves in that are not our fault, quote unquote, that we couldn't prevent, that we didn't ask for that we found ourselves in, like being raised, for example, in a cultural context that highly values physical appearance as a determinant of women's role and having these ideals that most of us aren't ever going to meet. That is just the cultural context that we live in. The reality also is we are 100% responsible for our choices. We are responsible for our behavior. We are responsible for our responses to this cultural context. And so I think we are often in this realm of trying to be 100% supportive and validating to our clients and to our communities that there are all kinds of things that are not fair about life. And there are all kinds of things that may have happened to you that are really objectively terrible and really difficult. And now what? What are you going to do with this information? How are you going to use this information that hopefully you're not going to deceive yourself about anymore, that you're going to look straight on smacking you in the face in all of its painful glory and say, I am not going to let this break me. I am actively Mm -hmm. going to take steps to evolve through it. I may not be able to change what happened or the reality that I'm living, but I can change 
my response to it. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the power is, where we can both acknowledge the pain and the realities around us that have influenced us in good and bad ways, while still saying, I'm still responsible for my eating. I'm still mm-hmm. responsible for the thoughts that run through my head when I look in the mirror. And when I notice they're negative, I am still responsible for a daily effort to challenge them. That is how we grow and evolve. Yeah, that's the work. And we'll switch gears a tiny bit, although I think this is going to feel maybe related. We'll see. But your new book is, let me actually read the title so I can say it accurately, is um, Letting Go of Your Ex, CBT Skills to Heal the Pain of a Breakup and Overcome love addiction. So that might feel like listeners, it's a big shift, but to me, my brain always sees connections and things. I'm like, I think there's connections here. I know there is, but let's start with just talking about what is love addiction and why should people understand it? There is a growing body of research and clinical work in the world of addictive behavior right now. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is oftentimes when we use the word addiction or when people hear the word addiction, they think of drugs and alcohol immediately, which Mm -hmm. makes a lot of sense because that's usually the realm that we have used that verb word in historically. Mm -hmm. But with an ever evolving body of neurobiological research, we're really being thrust into this world of understanding how non-substance related actions and things can feel addictive. Things Mm -hmm. like your cell phone, Mm -hmm. gambling, which is actually the only diagnosable behavioral addiction currently, Um, gaming, internet use, Mm -hmm. pornography, highly processed foods, sex, and love. So this book and the idea of love addiction is really coming from a perspective that we as humans are probably biologically programmed to become addicted to our mate when we fall in love. Mm. That Actually, the goal from a biological perspective is for you to meet somebody in this sea of potential partners, become fixated on them, become focused on them, become obsessed with them, want to touch them, want to be with them, want to think about them, want to build a life with them long enough that you'll have sex, procreate, form a bond so that the mother and child can survive. And that's at a very subconscious level. That's not, you're Mm -hmm. actually thinking that. That's what our bodies are really programmed to do. And so this book is really taking that idea of love as a naturally addictive process, a really magically wonderful one when you fall in love with someone who you really love and who's healthy for you and who loves you back. For anyone listening who's been in love, you kind of know that crazy, magical, insane feeling of being in love um, that can really turn into this crazy, horrible, heartbreaking experience if you break up or if you happen to fall in love with someone who isn't in love with you or not healthy for you. And so this book is a cognitive behavioral approach to helping people understand why you might feel addicted to an ex and how to use CBT-based skills to stop the symptoms you're experiencing and evolve Mm -hmm. through the experience of the breakup. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. This idea of, you know, addictions, like you said, we often think of it just as drug and alcohol, but really expanding that. And it's, you know, the main thing that's super interesting to me is, you know, the concept of food addiction is very controversial, but yes. I see some parallels here, right? This idea that you can be addicted to something you need because you do need connection, right? Like we are hardwired for connection, but can we be addicted to something we need? And so I know, you know, people in the, especially I'd say the health at every size paradigm are very pretty anti that term. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, I'm kind of curious your thoughts on that, but just it's, I hadn't really heard or thought a ton about the concept of love addiction until prepping for this interview, but it's an interesting parallel. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about any of that. Yeah. Well, you know, it is such a controversial topic, as you're pointing out, certainly in certain circles, the idea yeah. of food addiction and love addiction, um, very controversial. And in this latest version of the DSM-5, there were actually a whole host of behaviors and substances that were considered, including things like tanning addiction. You know, what I really think is that the body of research we're going to see on addictive behavior is going to continue to explode over the coming few decades. And I think when it comes to love, one of the things that's most compelling to me, and this somewhat relates to food as well, is that I think research on attachment and our clinical understanding of the fact that you actually need love to survive. You Mm -hmm. actually need a caregiver. You actually need to trust and attach to someone and be touched and be hyper-focused, fixated on this other human to thrive means that at some level, it's a biological necessity. And of course, it influences your brain chemistry. And so I think from that perspective, it can be very useful to think about love as a naturally addictive process, a very healthy addictive process, not a pathological one Mm -hmm. at various phases in our lives. Mm -hmm. And what it does do for people who are really going through breakups or who are in relationships that are harmful and potentially abusive, where we're looking at this relationship going, this is so dysfunctional, but the person is saying to you, I can't leave. I can't be without this person. They complete me. They define me. I think about them all the time. I'm obsessed That is really what I'm talking about when I'm Mm -hmm. talking about love addiction, where it's a problematic process that can very strongly cause clinical impairment and harm to somebody's life. And I think thinking about it from an addictive process is very validating to a lot of people because Mm -hmm. it mirrors their clinical experience. It mirrors how they experience themselves in the relationship or in the breakup. And I think that's one reason why we're seeing a massive flux of people going to 12-step programs for relationship problems, which again Mm -hmm. might you know sound odd to people. You think, you know, you're going to AA or NA. Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12-step program have been focused on substances, but there are actually movements, strong ones around codependency and sex addiction and eating addiction and emotional eating, right? And so Mm -hmm. I think for people who really have this core addiction experience, 
mm-hmm. which I think I'd say at its core is when you realize that you're hyper consumed by something and you want to stop using it, but you can't, that's mm-hmm. kind of the core of addiction. Mm-hmm. So if you're having that experience, understanding that your brain is probably responding in a very pleasure center, addictive based way. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that it's hard for you to stop and that there are a whole host of skills that we have learned from substance use literature that we have learned from relationship literature that we can integrate into your life to help you manage your symptoms, but also dig deeper and confront some of those self-deceptive beliefs so that you don't end up in the same relationship dysfunctional patterns over and over and over and over Mm -hmm. is really, really a useful way to conceptualize these behaviors. Right. Yeah. I think you were saying it gives people just a validating way to understand their experience and in a way that maybe hadn't been captured before they heard that term. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing can go for food addiction, right? Like some people I've found find that term incredibly validating of their experience mm-hmm. and others don't. Right. But mm-hmm. yeah. And, and like anything, it can be on that continuum, but this idea of like, yeah, we can be, our brains can get addicted to, it doesn't mean we're always going to be addicted to that thing. No. And you're not going to be right. addicted to every kind of food and you're not. So it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you're an addict in the sense that it's going to apply to all areas of your life or all, mm-hmm. all relationships that you're in. And I do think that when you feel addicted to something, it is a very unique experience. And so for people who have that experience, it's a really useful way for them to think about it because it doesn't feel like they're going crazy. So many people who I have worked with and probably who you've worked with who are struggling in relationships or particularly struggling through breakups. I see this so often in the college samples Mm -hmm. where they've fallen in love for the first time. They are madly in love. They're crazy in love with this person. And then it ends or there's a cheating situation or you name it. Right. And they describe feeling like they have lost themselves. They have lost their minds. They don't know who they are anymore. They can't stop checking their phone to see what pictures their ex posted. They can't stop reaching out there. They literally feel Mm -hmm. and describe their lives as if they're addicted to this ex. And so when I can say to them, you know, it actually makes a lot of sense why you're still addicted to them, why it feels Mm -hmm. like you're addicted to them, because when you fall in love, there's a lot of research to suggest that you're meant to become addicted to them because your body is trying to get you to attach to somebody long enough to make this happen. So now yeah. that they're gone, you're addicted essentially to something that's no longer in your life. And part of the healing process can be for us to figure out how to break that addiction and let them go so that you can move forward. Right, right. And not, you know, I used to not like the term transfer addiction. It was used a lot in like the bariatric weight loss surgery world just because mm-hmm. I felt like it could be a little stigmatizing potentially of like, oh, mm-hmm. you people that struggle with their weight are just addicted to things. And yeah, I think in across any body size, right? Like that if you don't heal what's underneath that addictive process, it, it could accidentally transfer to something else, right? Or you could, yeah, it's so interesting. Cause I've never really, I've never really I definitely haven't felt it to an extreme, but there was probably a very short relationship a long time ago in my life, very long ago that I'm like, hmm, after that breakup, I didn't get too obsessed with the person, probably a little bit, 
that I was able to break myself free, but I feel like I developed some other symptoms. And I think actually like the eating disorder symptoms got worse. So I don't know. It's just so interesting Mm -hmm. to think about like, if you don't do that healing work, Mm -hmm. that's a potential. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and just, and even just having a name for this, the symptomatology process, I think is helpful to people because I, I could be wrong. What are your thoughts about how common this is? I don't know if we have good research on that. Is it probably hard to measure? <laughs> it hasn't I don't been think we term. have, yeah, a tremendous amount of data on love addiction outside of some really pretty provocative brain-based neurobiological research pioneered yeah. really by Helen Fisher, which is looking at you know really what happens to your brain when you're in love and then mm-hmm. when you're in love in a good relationship or in love and have broken up. And it's pretty mm-hmm. compelling. Mm-hmm. It really highlights many of the areas of the brain that you see in drugs of addiction. <laughs> it mm-hmm. looks very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, what I will yeah. say is that the emerging comorbidity research Um, A lot of this is pioneered by um, Sussman at UCLA and and Griffiths was, is really kind of the premier expert who proposed that there are six core features of any addictive behavior that need to be present in order to call it a pathological addiction, that when you look at comorbidities and these kind of core traits of addictive behavior across types of behavior, so sex, porn, internet use, gambling, gaming, Mm -hmm. you name it, that there's a great deal of comorbidity, which Mm -hmm. speaks a little bit to your transfer idea. And it also speaks a bit to how much sort of dopamine rushes and stimulation in this really high pleasure center part of your brain can drive you to do things because they're so rewarding. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, they so strongly motivate our behavior and motivate us yeah. to want to go back and go back and go back. Yeah. Right. And I mean, it makes me think too, of like power of, and for me personally, I, the listeners know that I found like, and I'm still on this journey of finding compassion for parts of myself that I used to just label as bad, like the self-critic, like the power of attaching and having self-love towards those parts and how that how that could be so healing of like being able to look at this process from a compassionate standpoint of like yeah of course you're judging yourself harshly and maybe your friends are like can you just let this ex go like it's not that hard and you're like but it is that hard and then having compassion for that part of yourself that's just trying to get you something amazing and Mm -hmm. learning to give that to yourself and and for most of us, that's hard to do, like to really love like all parts of ourselves. Right. But it's totally doable. It really is. It is so hard. I mean, some of the things we say to ourselves in our own mind, if you said them out loud, you would never say that to another human. You would <laughs> oh, yeah. never be that cruel. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really, it's, it's so amazing how hard we can be to ourselves. And yeah. when it comes to romantic relationships too, I should say. I think it's really the breeding ground of a lot of our self-deception because Mm -hmm. the lies we believe about our partner when we fall in love, particularly the people that we really don't know very well yet, because when you first meet someone and start dating, you really don't know much about them and they really Mm -hmm. don't know much about you. And so you really (laughs) extrapolate. They are who you wish they were. They aren't really who you think they are. They're they're Mm -hmm. someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that journey of developing meaningful romantic relationships that are sustainable over years and over, you know, lifetimes 
means that at some level, you are going to have to get really honest with yourself about who you are, with yourself about who they are, and they're going to have to do the same for you. And in that journey, as ugly as it can be, because you're going to find out some things you really don't like about them and yourself, when you can stay together long enough to see each other as honestly as possible and still choose to stay, I think that is probably the most profound gift you can give to another human. I agree. And that's it. Yeah, beautifully said. And I agree with all of it. it only the last couple of years, I've talked about it a little bit on the podcast. Marriage isn't easy. And I definitely, I have that tendency to get real excited early parts of the relationship. So I can totally see where you're just like, and I have a, a wonderful partner. He's great. I, I was all in and I knew him through people, but I like first date, I was just like, it's it. <laughs> and just that, that personality trait of mine. I'm like, oh, I get it. I get where people could feel this way. And luckily he was like an emotionally available human who's willing to continue to work on himself alongside of me. Right. So that's helpful. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing because it's, it's often to those relationships where, because we, we believe so many things that we want to believe about our partners, you may find yourself falling in love with someone who actually really isn't very healthy for you, who isn't emotionally mm -hmm. available. And then for some of us, we realize, oh my gosh, I'm actually attracted to people who aren't available. And ouch, 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 that is coming from much older learning here that I'm going to have to heal and unpack before I'm ever really going to be available for people who are emotionally available to me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah. there's so much exploration that happens in our romantic relationships. Again, it's a part of the human condition, I would argue. We are built to be in relationships. We are also built to explore ourselves as a romantic sexual being. And so as that happens, as we do that over the course of our lives, we are going to be put in some very vulnerable positions. And the more vulnerable position we're in, the scarier it's going to be, and the more likely we're going to want to lie to ourselves about something. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's so, so good. And so often we talk on this podcast about how we over-focus on eating and exercise as it relates to overall health. And not that that's not important, but sleep, stress, and social relationships. And social relationships, obviously, is like what we're digging into here. It's so hmm. key, but it can be such a source of, you know, amazing strength but it's it is it's a lot of work and <laughs> it really someone to really hold that mirror up against you so mm -hmm. yeah if someone if you're like okay and I'm going to get to a few of our just uh, motivation questions at the end here but if someone's listening they're like all right I'm on board like I need to lie to myself less or I need to look at myself honestly where would you say they start what would be the first step if they're like I'm ready to take this the next step Start with your emotional reactions. Mm -hmm. And I say that because I think it's probably the easiest thing for us to become aware of in the yeah. moment. Mm -hmm. When you're having a strong emotional reaction to something, you're really angry, you're really sad, you're really anxious, pause. Just yeah. stop everything that you're doing. Sit down with a pen and piece of paper and ask mm -hmm. yourself, what situation am I in right now? What are my thoughts? What are the thoughts that are running through my head? And is this 
accurate and helpful or not. And start to unpack where your reaction is coming from, because I can pretty much guarantee you if you're having a strong reaction, some of it is about the situation you're in, but a lot of it is about your internal perception. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of it's about stuff that happened a long time ago, which is so interesting, right? I think even psychologists, you know, we know these things intellectually, but I'm constantly like, oh, that situation with my son that I got so angry about had nothing to do with his behavior. It was like my old teenage rage or some old experience, but yeah, I love that. Just sitting down and compassionately, curiously, what the heck is coming up for me? Right. Like with true compassion though, to be like, what is it? No judgment. Yeah. You know, being judgmental doesn't serve any of us well, and it doesn't serve you well to be judgmental towards yourself with love, with an observer's perspective, almost like you were watching a loved one or your best friend ask Mm -hmm. yourself, what, what does this say about me? What can I learn about myself from this experience? Yeah. Isn't this interesting? Right. Like I'm having this reaction and yeah. No, yeah. I love Isn't that. Isn't funny? I'm having this reaction. Let me see if hmm. I can unpack this further. Hmm. It's a big experiment. Yes. Think of it as yeah. a big experiment. Totally. It takes a lot of courage. Well, I love that. Hey everyone. Are you a therapist, dietitian, or helping professional that works with people with disordered eating or some degree of eating or weight concern? If so, I have a free tool for you that I had way too much fun developing. So if you have clients who say things like, I really like intuitive eating, but ultimately I want to lose weight, or in your opinion, you notice that they have a really hard time not focusing on weight loss and it really gets in the way of them doing the things they want to do or getting in touch with their body, but you're not always sure the best ways to support or guide them because maybe you understand why they want to lose weight, you know, given our culture, Um, but you also want to help them build up their ability to trust their body. So maybe you've tried things like empathizing with them, telling them the science about dieting or weight loss, but maybe they're wanting a little more direction from you and you're feeling a bit stuck. So how can you help them explore what's right for them without imposing your own agenda onto them, which tends to backfire? So I created this free step-by-step guide to guide you through my favorite exercise, which is based on internal family systems theory or kind of the parts psychology, as some people call it. And it helps you help your client navigate this nuanced dynamic that's very personal with the different parts of them that, you know, maybe want peace with food, but other parts that still really want to lose weight. This is my number one favorite way to help clients build self-trust while taking the pressure off of you as the provider to know the exact right advice to give or say. So grab this exercise for free, including exactly how to do it at drhondorp.com forward slash parts. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash parts. So grab it for free today. And if you use it with a client, make sure you shoot me an email and let me know. All right, let's get back to the episode. Okay, so we're going to do our motivation questions that we always ask our guests at the end here. So the first question is our intrinsic motivation question. So what's one thing you have truly intrinsic motivation for? You do it for the inherent satisfaction from the behavior itself. I am highly intrinsically motivated to understand people, Mm -hmm. including myself. And that doesn't mean it's not scary. (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. And it doesn't mean it doesn't terrify me sometimes or make me incredibly angry, but I, I really selfishly and altruistically think that that is the most important journey in life. And it brings me more gifts than I could possibly communicate to people because Mm -hmm. the more you understand yourself and those around you, the more freedom you have to make choices with your life. And so Mm -hmm. I am fascinated by people. I watch all of the documentaries. I read all of the books. (laughs) I, you know, I'm fascinated by how we work and what makes us tick and what motivates us and helping us explore that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. And obviously that's, you've found this like amazing career that you can get to do that all the time. It's awesome. Yes. I can definitely relate to that. Yeah. Okay. The second question is from a should to a choose to. So integrated motivation, an example of a behavior that was always a should for you in the past. Maybe you struggled to do it, um, but you figured out a way to do it more consistently because you value it, even if you maybe don't always love it. Mm. You know, I think the most obvious one for me is working out. I Mm -hmm. exercise a lot. And as a kid, I remember like, especially track and field or running, like I hated running. It was not (laughs) my thing. Yeah, It's really still not my thing, Mm -hmm. but I think I found a way over the years to really embrace exercise and how much it helps me feel good doing the selective exercise that I actually do enjoy quite a lot to be Mm -hmm. sure that I'm fueling my body and keeping myself healthy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like a chore anymore. Sometimes it still really hurts. There are days where I still <laughs> really don't want to do it, but yeah. it now is really much more of a part of my lifestyle and one that I am so grateful for. Some days I say 20 minutes, I have a 20 minute rule. If it still hurts and is super uncomfortable after 20 minutes, then I can stop. Mm-hmm. And what I usually find is that almost all the time, after 20 minutes, I feel a lot better and I'll mm-hmm. keep going for a bit more. But there yeah. are those days where I say, this still sucks. I'm done. And at yeah. least I did 20 minutes. Yeah. And you give yourself that choice. What's the exercise you like the most? Oh, I, you know, functional training, I would say. Mm-hmm. I like just weights yeah. with squats and jumps, like hit it hard, cool. make it hard, make me sweat, and then I'm done. Nice. Yeah. What do you like most about that? I, my my listeners know that I struggle with strength training. <laughs> I want to learn to love it. <laughs> I'm always asking. You know, I love, I do four days a week for a half an hour. Nice. So they're yeah. super intense. I work out with a trainer. Cool. I want to sweat. I want to be sore. I want to be out of breath. Mm-hmm. And then I know that I have gotten to a physiological state where my body actually really benefits Mm -hmm. and anything else I do is kind of cake. So I also love to walk, which isn't really exercise the way that I walk. (laughs) Mine is much more just like (laughs) nice and lovely walking outside leisurely. Um, so if there's a way you can think to yourself, like my body loves this, this is healing mm-hmm. for my body to do this. It is good mm-hmm. for me to sweat. It is good for me to be out of breath. It is good for me to be in more athletic conditioning. Yeah. There's sort of this like toughness that comes, right? Like, yeah. it's like this it's like hurts and it, it kind of mm-hmm. sucks, but I'm going to do it anyway Yeah. that I find very gratifying. Nice. And maybe you would do over, over time if you keep, you know, 
be your own cheerleader there. Yes. Yeah. Pairing it with the, I've, I've had some success with that, like pairing it with the thoughts of like, I'm getting stronger. I'm getting like, I mean, a lot of it is like mobility and reducing pain and just like being able to be active for a long time is very much a value of mine. And I'm making some progress. I would say I'm, yeah, I'm <laughs> getting there, but it's definitely not something I've ever got to the place of doing as consistently as I'd like to. So we all have our journeys, right? <laughs> we do. It's such a journey. You know, yeah. I also look at the research. I know you love data as well. And <laughs> yes. Particularly as we age for women, as we become, this is my generate my age range, but as we become perimenopausal, as we kind of go through these aging processes, it's so much more important that we work out with weights. And so mm -hmm. just reminding yourself of those data mm -hmm. and saying, you know, actually the trajectory for us, if we don't get some strength training in there is that we're just going to sort of slowly go down. Whereas if yeah. we can maintain starting now, you're putting yourself in such a better position moving forward. Yeah. I should probably just, I am very motivated by those types of data. I should just listen to podcasts about like data, about strength yes. training the whole time I'm doing it to just be like, you're doing a good job. I totally actually did that when I was like, breastfeeding and nursing and pumping. Cause I was just like, I'm trying to do it as long as I can. Here's some data to support what you're doing. Yes, <laughs> so I yes. probably would be pretty motivated by that. Yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. I love that. Um, okay, great. And then a main part of our mission here is to help more people reclaim trust for, with their bodies so they can live more courageous and connected lives. Can you share an example or two where having more body trust for yourself has allowed you to be more courageous and or connected? We exist in a physical form, right? It's an existential reality that a lot of us struggle with, particularly people who have any body image or eating issues. And I think the degree to which we can become empathically connected to our physical selves because it is a part of who we are inherently, you can't escape yourself, the more comfortable and confident you will be no matter what you do in life. So I would say practicing an appreciation for who you are in body, in physical form, things that you like. I, I love mirror exposure exercises. So mm -hmm. looking at yourself in the mirror and staring down anything you're being critical about until you can actually acknowledge that this is something really wonderful about my body. And this is mm -hmm. something that describes me and my way of being in the world and that I don't have anything to be ashamed of in terms of my physical self, developing that confidence is so wonderful, especially for women, because historically it really has been such a struggle yeah. um, because we're so judged for our physical appearance from a cultural perspective. So mm -hmm. I would say Know that your value actually has nothing to do with your physical appearance and you're connected intimately to your body. Mm -hmm. They're both right. true. Embrace yeah. the latter as your opportunity to walk into any room in any situation with no makeup on, with looking, you know, disheveled, wearing your pajamas with just as much confidence as if you had had the, you know, two hour makeover. That's the goal. Right, right. This idea of being able to be embodied, I feel like is a term that I'm I'm saying and we're hearing more maybe lately. And just like this idea of I can just stay with my body. And yeah, I have a physical body and how can I learn to 
to love it and bring it with me in all of life's experiences. So I love that. Any final thoughts or suggestions you have for people that if they want to connect and learn more? Uh, my website is drcourtney.com. You are welcome to follow me on LinkedIn or social media sites. I even have started posting on TikTok and Instagram, some informational mm -hmm. short videos that are really yeah. just intended to be little snippets of motivation or snippets of data that are coming out, things cool. that I'm researching. You know, what I really want to reiterate for every human out there is that we're all on this journey of life. It really is a journey of personal growth and understanding yourself. I think that the more you can see your life as an opportunity to understand yourself more deeply each day, understanding that the world is going to bring you different opportunities in the future, the more empowered you're going to be to craft the life that you really want to live. Know that you're not alone. Know that we're all struggling with something. Know that I think intention matters greatly and every bit of your effort is worth it because it will continue to move you forward. I love that. Yeah, it's true growth mindset and it's the very opposite of a mindset. I occasionally catch myself in, which is like race to healing. <laughs> it's like, eh, it's just going to keep continuing and it's fine. There's freedom in that. And so, yeah, I love that so much. And mm. I so appreciate you being here. This was a really fun conversation. My pleasure. I love talking with you and I certainly hope people find some of the information helpful. And before we finish today's episode, I have a really quick message from a special guest, my daughter. Please review from my mom's podcast make something for my mom's podcast please thank you thank you for tuning in today your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here despite the title of this podcast many of our topics are not always easy change is hard and let's face it life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable that's why i'm grateful grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.